Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is songwriting consultant and mastering engineer Mitchell Dyer. First of all, AM radio has been around since the beginning of broadcasting, and FM was invented in the 1930s, but it surpassed AM as the choice of many listeners in the 1980s. Both AM and FM have had an excellent run, but the question is, how much longer are we going to be using them? Now, here are some problems. AM faces a big challenge in that it has inferior audio quality, first of all, that's bad enough, but the AM signal can't penetrate the electromagnetic fields generated by electric vehicles, which means you don't get AM in an electric car. Now, most surveys will tell you that 70, 75% of people listen to radio in their cars sometime during the week. So not having AM there is a big problem. FM radio continues to do well, but it has a big disadvantage in that it's not interactive at all. And that's what a lot of young listeners are looking for. Then we have satellite radio, and that's really a special niche. There's only one provider in North America, and it offers a huge variety of programming, but it's not free. And that's a big barrier to a lot of people. HD radio, which some cars have, is based on a technology that was developed in the 1990s, but it never really took off in the United States anyway. And as a result, many markets have stations that broadcast in HD, but not many people actually listen to those stations. So AM and FM radio, we still get in the United States. We still listen to music on both. But the fact of the matter is, in many countries of the world, Norway, Switzerland, they are shutting down their AM and FM radio stations, and they're going instead to digital radio. That's not going to happen in North America, because the broadcast frequencies that digital audio broadcasting requires are too close to those used by the U.S. military. Also, it would take a huge investment for transmitters and repeaters, and there's nobody that wants to do that considering where radio stands today. We have some new technologies coming up on the cell phone, 5G, 6G. As a result, people are thinking, well, maybe we're going to have radio that's going to broadcast exclusively using those technologies. But there's a lot of technical infrastructure that needs to be done first And we're a little bit away from it. So the whole question is, what is going to happen with AM and FM radio? Already we're finding that FM stations that do music, in order to get their top 40, top 10, whatever it might be, they're getting it from streaming. So right now they're actually behind everything where it used to be that this was the forefront of new music. Not anymore. I think in the end, radio is not going to go away. It's going to be with us for a while, but it does need an overhaul. It's going to have to change, and it's going to have to change in order to survive. Problem is, we don't know what that is yet. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news 
and you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, I frequently get questions about adding a subwoofer to your playback system. And then the follow-up question is, well, I have too much bass or not enough bass, or I just can't make this work. So here's a quick guideline in order to make your subwoofer work. The first thing is you should buy a sub from the same manufacturer as your main speakers. And the reason why is that the subwoofer is made to go with those speakers, which means that there's going to be a seamless transition when the frequencies go from the main speakers down to the subwoofer. When you mismatch subs with main speakers, there tends to be a hole in the frequency response or a big bump in the frequency response that you really can't get rid of. So as a result, you can just eliminate that right off by getting a sub from the same manufacturer. Okay, so you've done that. How do you calibrate it? Well, the first thing is you have to calibrate your main speakers, and that means you put pink noise into one speaker only, and then you measure it using an SPL meter. You can get an app on your phone. You want to calibrate it to like 82 dB. Why 82? Well, that's what television engineers actually use as their reference point. Film uses 85. That's a little on the loud side, so 82 tends to work pretty good. Then you do your other speaker. So you're only doing one speaker at a time, but now you're going to have a balance between both of them. Then you're going to go down to the subwoofer with the same pink noise, but you're going to calibrate it to 6 dB less. Yes, it's going to be at 76 dB rather than 82. The reason why is our ears are most sensitive at the 3 to 4K range, and that's the range of a baby crying. Nature attenuates the low frequencies to make them less distracting to us. And just think about if you could hear the low frequencies at the same level as you do those mid-range frequencies, it would drive you crazy if a truck was a few blocks away and you can hear the rumble of it. So low frequencies are attenuated, and as a result, we have to calibrate the sub differently. Now, here's the last thing. You have to experiment with placement. What most people will do is they'll put the sub in the most convenient place in the room. Might be under their desk, might be in a corner. And the real problem is you can't really predict where it's going to work the best. So the best thing to do is put it in one place, calibrate it, move it around. So it'll take some time to experiment, but sooner or later you're going to find the one place in the room where it just shines, where everything seems to work well. Remember, you can't mix it if you can't hear it, and hearing the low frequencies are one of the most difficult things in audio to try to do on the fly. It's the reason why studios can cost so much to build and why acoustic designers get the big bucks. My guest this week is the on-demand songwriter and mastering engineer Mitchell Dyer, who's on a mission to help other songwriters eliminate their mental blocks and turn their songwriting struggles into a revenue-generating career. With nearly two decades of songwriting and mastering experience, thousands of artists' songs reviewed, and hundreds of songs personally recorded, Mitch has helped dozens of artists break out of their mental jail and instead create some amazing music. During the interview, we spoke about what causes songwriters to get stuck, how imposter syndrome can cause writer's block, the importance of challenging the listener, learning how to master, and much more. 
I spoke with Mitch via Zoom from a studio in Utah. Let's go back to the beginning. So tell me how you got in the music business. Ooh. <laughs> it, I mean, I guess it's how you define, like, when you actually get in. Uh, I really took, I guess, really wanting to do this seriously and get into the business was probably back in 2009. So I was a wee lad teenager in high school. And, you know, I think what a lot of people do is they join a band and they start playing music and, and it's, it's kind of transformed over time where being in two different bands and now focusing on, and then, and then in the path of learning how to record mix and master and then understanding uh, just kind of the whole process. And now I'm building out a songwriting course that really empowers musicians to write more music in a scalable way um, that has a step-by-step process. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the whole start. So it's been over 15 years, just kind of from that point to where I'm at now. So how did you get into songwriting? Uh, I guess how I got into songwriting is really was uh, like, it's a really funny story. I remember uh, in high school and uh, I always, you know, I, th- I think I've always wanted to write music since I was like, I can't remember, maybe like 12 years old. And I was just always imagine myself playing original music and it didn't really start happening where I started writing my own original music. Um, and with this one time, my buddy brought his guitar, didn't know how to play a guitar at the time. And I remember sitting there and he's just playing this song. And I just had these like this message, this image come to my mind. And that is when like, I just started like singing and I was just like improving, and that was something that came so natural to me was just improvisation when it c- came to lyric writing. And we were hanging out with these two girls, and at the end of this, you know, he was playing just this random song that he wrote on the guitar, and I was putting lyrics over it. And these girls were like, "Oh, cool! What was the cover of?" <laughs> hmm. I said it wasn't a cover; I made it up. And they thought I was full of it. And at that point, that's when I wanted to to really start writing music. And so from then on, I started writing music all the time and so it was back in 2009 is when i really started taking songwriting uh, much more seriously than i ever had before and then that led to what so it led me to be it led me to starting a band kind of doing small mini tours releasing ep with that band and some singles and then left that band and started another one and then released singles a whole album with that second band and that was a, over the course of, uh, I guess, 10 years was just writing, recording, practicing, failing with my songwriting is really just really the story of it. So you found that many writers have writer's block and they can't write. Did that happen to you? I think at first, I mean, everyone does, unless you're just, you're just the gifted one that doesn't struggle with writer's block. But I think when I was learning like how a song is structured and how it works, I, I basically like worked through the roadblocks. And because I worked through those diligently, I understood like what caused me to be stuck. And so for me, I'm very process oriented. And so I started just creating these natural processes for myself that helped me to know, okay, when I'm stuck, you know, this is how I got out last time. And so I just used 
a bunch of these, like found all these things. And then I systematically figured out a way to then just put them all like step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, to the point of just really avoiding writer's block. Cause I think everyone like comes to, comes to like, will run into, I don't know, I'm trying to personify it, but a villain of writer's block. And it's a matter of, okay, I've hit this block. How do I get past it? And so, cause I had processes in place, I, you know, over time went from mitigating a lot of writer's block moments to being able to, I want to write a song today. And then basically using the process I created to in one evening have a, a song fleshed out and it's like, okay, sweet. Now I can record it, get it produced, mix mastered. And so that's kind of where I'm at today. And that's what I'm teaching songwriters, musicians today. So they feel like they, they just run into a wall. And can't get any further. Is it because of what they don't know, or is it because of they just run into a block? <laughs> I think it's both. I I know for me when I have had because there's been times even with the process, it's mindset shift that needs to happen, where it's really the biggest one is imposter syndrome, and I think it's with any industry when you want to be creative or whenever you want to find a solution, it's usually because imposter syndrome where you compare your craft with other musicians or you basically are too perfect and you're trying to get your song to this unrealistic, perfect thing. When we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people that make imperfect choices. So how can you expect to make something perfect when we make mistakes every day? <laughs> so I think perfectionism is it's, I guess like what people are trying to do is very subjective when they're trying to be perfect, but it's really just letting the imperfections be the song. I've just found some of the some of my favorite artists that became like over time became really really big. Uh, one example I'm thinking of is Bon Iver. Um, I believe it was what is the name of the album? It, it went like double platinum or something like that. And he wrote pretty much wrote and recorded it in his little cabin in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Like it wasn't, he just like put himself into his craft and just really focused on like what he loved and and really tried to express himself in the way that he knew best in his songwriting. And I think that's that's what gets in our way is that we start we start comparing ourselves on on other artists locally or our biggest ones. And I think that is a huge reason a lot of artists struggle with writer's block is because they're trying to write something that isn't them. And they're also just feeling like an imposter saying, I'm not a songwriter. I can't do this. I can't be in a band. Like I don't have music theory or just again, excuses come. And I think that's what really creates it. And it's, it's, I think it's partially, I think 50%, maybe more. I don't know. It's partially mindset. And then it's partially, I think a lot of musicians just don't have a process of, I want to write a new song. And then they go to YouTube and they look up uh, songwriting tips and they're like, try this. And they try it and they're like, okay, that only helps. Like it helps create ideas, but not finish songs. Hmm. And then there's some other people that are like, here's how to finish the lyrics to your song. And they say, take all, just start writing random ideas. I'm like, that's you're you're basically like taking a mess and moving it somewhere else in your house. <laughs> yeah, have all these clothes. I'm going to put it on my bed. And it's like, you still have a mess. And um, and that's just a lack of having a process 
that basically really what it is is learning how to put creative cr constraints in the creation process of songwriting and that's where the best songs come from and people don't have that they don't know like what is a step one not like mixing and mastering where it's you know there's that people have step by step but it's I, I i do more mastering than mixing but it's you start with eq and you get you know you get the overall track to sound good then you compress it and then you add a limiter i mean that's kind of basic like it's a step-by-step -step process and i don't feel like there's musicians don't really have that step-by-step -step process in songwriting which again i think that's where writer's block comes from lack of process I just ran into this a couple times recently, uh, and it's in podcast people that I would talk to, uh, famous people. There's one songwriter in particular who has more hits than you can imagine. Top tens, number ones all over the world. And it was the same thing. It's like, I always think I'm not good enough. I always think that someone will find me out. Uh, same thing with the mixer. Again, very famous mixers had number one hits all over saying the same thing. I fear the day, every day, I think somebody's going to find out about me. Meaning, <laughs> meaning they're going to find out I'm not as good yeah, as... You're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I interviewed somebody else who was a coach, two very famous musicians, I mean, legends, and saying the same thing, where the insecurities, even from these people who are on top of the world and have made millions of dollars, are is, you know, one of those things that... Not many people know about, but it holds them back even at that level. So it's something that, that's a very common thing. It's the human experience is really what it is. Yeah. Like that's the theme. Like we all have weaknesses. We all have insecurities and it's learning how to have confidence and taking those leaps of faith and saying, yeah, this is who I am and pushing out all the accolades, the vanity metrics, all the things that prove that you're good at what you do and just realize like you are good and you have to kind of share that, that true narrative. Cause I think it's truth to yourself to, and then just kind of like push out the noise constantly, push out those thoughts because that's, it holds a lot of people back. Songwriting is so interesting from the standpoint that it can go two ways. I mean, one way is it just flows through you and you have a song in 15 minutes and we've all heard all of the stories where that has happened. And on the other hand, you get the people that, especially professional songwriters who collaborate all the time, every day, they're collaborating with somebody new. And it's that collaboration that keeps them from getting stuck because it's, it's new stimuli every day. I look at it and I think, well, if one doesn't work, then go for the other. <laughs> you know, you would think, right? <laughs> I don't, I haven't, even, haven't really thought of, about that because I haven't had a ton of experience with collaborations again i think and maybe this is just my personality type i like when you have your creation and you want to create it you have you have the thing in your head and so you want to realize that and there's i mean there's a balance of there's one thing i've been really teaching songwriters is to not basically do it all like hire someone out to help you produce mix and master and i guess that's the collaboration part but the actual like writing the song, that's one thing that I've just had a hard time with. I have tried. I think for me, I found more writer's block if I like took my idea and collaborated with someone else than just to do it by myself. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so no. maybe there's there's some truth to it. I get that. Professional songwriters, I mean, you know, the real pros that do write every day, they tend to write with other people rather than 
by themselves. They tend to collaborate a lot. You might want to listen to uh, Sam Hollander. on. He was on my podcast three weeks ago, four weeks ago, something like that. And uh, a very and Holly Knight was another one that both had huge, huge hits. And, you know, they're pros. That's what they do <laughs> all the time. Yeah. I've also run into this with songwriters where so-called professional songwriters where they get so process-oriented almost, and, and I'm talking in collaboration, that what they come up with is kind of soulless. You know, you can always tell when when a professional, at least on, on some level, you know, that it's like, oh, yeah, he wrote a song, but I don't know. I don't feel it. Yeah, it's almost like they, they plug it into... It, basically they just are churning out music rather than just trying to what is the song trying to communicate to me i almost feel like every song that i've created or others have created is almost like raising a child it's birthing it it's it's you can't you know the lyrics are almost like a child trying to learn how to you know speak the language and it's taking care like it's raising that song to you know the finished product that we hear on all streaming services and so I think having a process can, like, if that's like you're saying, just process oriented, it's like, I'm doing pop songs, it's this, 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 and they just start pop, like pumping them out and just saying, this is a hook idea. They go on TikTok or Instagram and being like, this is what they're talking about. So we're just going to plug this in and, and boom, we have a song. And it's just like, but is that from your experience? Are you writing it because it, it's something that like means something to you and you really connect with what you're singing? Or are you just trying to just make a quick buck from your songwriting ability? Uh, and I feel like, I guess short term that might work, you know, mm. fiscally, but in the long term, it's, it's, I call it fast food music. Like it's easy, it's cheap, but it, it's lacks nutrition and people just like move on to the next thing. Where if you want a timeless song, a classic, then you really have to, raise your song like like a, ch a child that's kind of how i imagine it let's talk about how songwriting has evolved because it certainly has i mean for decades we had kind of the same thing where you had intro verse b section chorus uh verse and, and there'd be a bridge in there and there'd be an outro and maybe a solo and now we have songs that start right in the chorus right in the hook and there's no bridge or it's uh, the bridge is some sort of modified verse where it's there's a breakdown or something you know but it, and it acts as a bridge where they change the melody slightly but it's definitely changed i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that pe so many people are writing to loops and samples oh yeah totally and uh i think i think that's fine to, again it's just like it's if if that's what the song is needing is that if that's what's going to be like authentic and unique but i think sometimes we get lost in i need to write a new song i need to write a new song and it's a very scarcity mindset rather than having abundance mindset of like no i'm not going to write my song like this you know cuz you and that's what i think that's why i love about folk music cuz it's just it's just kind of like the a like just an aaa form where it's just a verse the entire time and then they kind of modify little parts of their melody throughout the song but it's it's and it's cool because you can really focus on the lyrics on that and so that's one thing i've really appreciated about folk music is that pattern really focused like it just 
it takes the listener and it, it forces them to actually like listen to the message rather than just, oh, this is a catchy, fun song that I want to listen to with the windows down in the summertime, which is totally fine. But if I feel like people like variety and and I think just focusing on just one, like how music, you know, people just like pump out music, it's it's created an interesting dynamic for sure in the music industry. And then, you know, you can go back to funk with James Brown, where he changed, and if you listen to his career, you know, he was doing just a standard uh, R&B, you know, ABA type of thing. And then all of a sudden he he's changes into vamps, where it's just a vamp that goes through the whole song. But yet it's, you know, and again, I when I think about it, he really changed songwriting a lot because it's a lot of what we do today where it's focused on the beat, you know, and, and, not, and a hook and, and not so much anything else, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't, and I, 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 and I guess like, I don't know a lot of history of James Brown, but I think with a lot of musicians that are writing these amazing songs, I don't think they're just sitting down and saying, okay, what's the most popular structure that that's out there. And then I'm just going to like write to it. I think, the musicians that I mean, they do have the luxury of just, just writing like what they love, and 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 finding influences from today and being like, I don't like this, but I do like this aspect. And then you get these really creative things like you're talking about, where it's you're doing your own thing, and you're like, oh, I like this like thing that like, for example, if you're like a folk singer and you like something with pop that's really good, and you're like, oh, I really like this. I'm gonna try it and try to like make it authentic to to your writing. I think that's really what's happening when these professional songwriters, musicians write these awesome songs. And it's like, oh man, they're a genius for, for, you know, like they really thought out the structure. And I, I honestly think that a lot of them are like, no, this just sounds cool. Let's try it. And they weren't really trying to be innovative. I guess they were unintentionally. <laughs> they were just writing what they loved. And I feel like that is what I think songwriters miss and, forget to focus on um that really prevents them from writing the music that will connect to listeners one of the things i can remember and this is going back a ways but if you go around the world and and you know you're in paris and you're walking down the champs Elysees, and you would hear music coming out of the various shops it would be american music whatever was on the top 40 whatever was a hit that's what you'd hear and you can go to Thailand, you can go to Hong Kong, didn't matter. It would be like that. It would be mostly U.S. Now it's completely different. Now what it is is you're hearing their own version with influenced by American Western music, but their own version of it, which I find really exciting because it's some new twist. It's like, oh, I never heard that before. I never heard it in that way, maybe. Yeah. You know? I can remember being in um, Australia, and there was a concert on the steps of the Sydney Opera House, the famous opera house. Yeah. And it was a band from Papua New Guinea, 11 people on the stage. And they would change every song. And first of all, they had indigenous drummers playing. And usually it's it seems like it's tacked on, you know, when that happens. In yeah. this case, it was really part of the music and it was so exciting. And then they would change... Uh, they go into rap, which would be as good as, you know, hip hop, as good yeah. as anything over here. And then they change into this, you know, five part doo harmony. You go, 
How did this happen over <laughs> Papua New Guinea? Are you kidding me? So good. Yeah, and it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's why I like going places because you hear this stuff. And, you know, you might hear that, as you say, sometimes it, it seems to get old here. It's, you know, okay, whatever is the hit, well, let's do more like that. And you go other places and you don't have that so much. Yeah, there. so there's a book that I really like called, and help me, because I wanted to understand the psychology on what makes a hit. It's called Hitmakers. I can't remember who author is, but the the part I really liked from that book was really understanding why hits really song like hit songs actually become hits and understanding even you know during Tin Pan um, Tin Pan Alley uh, where like how they actually did like their market research which was so cool how they did it but I digress from that but the whole concept of the the neo there's neophilic and neophobic which is the difference between like being being attracted to new things and and fearing new things and as humans and this goes back all the way to the caveman times it's we are naturally neophobic we don't like new things like completely like black and white new things because on a subconscious of a physiological level, if something is unfamiliar to us back in, you know, biologically during caveman times, that would represent something that's a threat that could kill you. And so that is something that we, you know, we've carried on even into the music industry that if it's too unique, it's too out there and, you're, and, and it's not relatable enough, people will skip it. They're like, oh, there's something I don't like about this. Mm. And that's the neophobic, you know, state that we are all in. And so I find I found that how do you get someone from a neophobic state to a neophilic state? And it's really the balance of creating something. And this is where the trap is. It's you create what's popular, but what makes it unique is just adding something that challenges the listener because if it's too familiar, then it doesn't challenge us. We get bored and we move on because we like a little bit of challenge. And so this whole book really focused, uh, this, this part of the book focused on write something that is familiar enough, but also unique enough that challenges the listener to want more. And I think what you've expressed was exactly that. Yeah. It's finding like it's familiar but they added some unique things with that familiarity that was like, well, this is really exciting and you want more of it. And I think that is the key that musicians need to realize when it comes to writing music. There's also a study on melody and what pulls us in. And I cannot remember the term for it, but essentially what it is, it's a big jump between notes instead of going like a third or a fifth. This is, you know, going a, a seventh, a ninth, whatever. Oh, the different inter intervals? Intervals. And Adele was one of the best at this. And if you listen to her hits, whenever you get to the chorus, all of a sudden there's a big jump in the melody. And that was one of the things when they actually looked at hits and why there were hits and why certain songs, you know, were more popular than others. That was one of the things. I wish I could remember the term for it, but uh, that might be something that... that you might want to look into. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. I yeah. like that. Tell me about uh, mastering, getting into mastering. Yeah. So I've been mastering 
I, it's, it's always funny. Like, when do you, it kind of goes back to that imposter syndrome. When do you, you know, tell people that you're a professional mastering engineer? Like what? And I think it's like, it's the same thing. It's, it, I always say if, if someone's paid you to do it, you're professional at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and um, so I've been, I've been doing it for professionally for about two years and it really all stemmed from, so it, it's really when I was in my, the, the second band I was in, I wanted to learn to record and then I realized, oh, you have to learn how to, then there's, there's production. And then I was like, okay, hey, I want to learn how to mix and produce. And then I'd get to the mixing stage. I'm like, it's not, it's, it was chasing that, the utopian track, you know, you're just like, you have it in your head, you know, exactly what you're trying to create. And so it led me to like getting it and be like, oh, it's just lacking like that final touch. And I was like, I want to become a mastering engineer. And so I ended up uh, taking a course by a mastering engineer named Blake LaGrange. He has a course called mastering.com. Honestly, an amazing course. And it's just it's grown so much. And and from that, understanding the process, it's been it, one of the most exciting things that I was able to achieve was to take a, like someone else's song or even my own song and get it to like exactly how I've been trying to get it for like, a decade being like oh it's you know we, i'd work with in my last band i'd work with these professional mixing engineers that were also mastering engineers and they would just not sound as good as what was out there and i was like i want to have that competitive sound and then once i was able to to learn how to get that competitive sound it was one of the most rewarding moments after all the hard work of of getting my room tuned and and getting you know there's a lot of math that goes into to mastering and getting everything set up just right so that uh, you can you can master in the you know it's treated and so your ears are are accurate and to be able to have everything translate well and to sound good on different everywhere and it was like it was that was one of the most rewarding moments mm. was getting to the point where my masters could compete with other professional mastering engineers. Ken Scott, who's um, a friend of mine, uh, one of the legends of engineers, he did uh, like the Beatles. He was one of the five Beatle engineers and David Bowie and Supertramp and oh, stuff like that, so right? Cool. He was a product of the EMI Abbey Road School, right? Grew up in Abbey Road. And the way it worked with them was you started as a T-boy, basically a runner, and then a tape op, which we don't have anymore. And then you were an assistant and then before you became an engineer, they put you in mastering and you'd be in mastering for a couple of years. And it was more important back then than it was now from the standpoint that the whole idea was you, you have to figure out how to get all this sound onto a piece of vinyl. And if you didn't get it right, the needle would skip, it would jump out of the groove, which didn't work at all. And then once you figured that out, and you can make it all do that and then sound good. Then they graduated you into becoming an engineer. The other thing that he said to me is nobody ever trained me in mastering. What they do is they just put you in and then you learn by doing. And, <laughs> and he said awesome. that, that at first you just turn all the knobs and think it sounds good. And he said, after a week or so you go, Oh, wait a second. It sounds better if I just use a little bit and you pull yourself in rather than having somebody beat you up. But wow. again, that was way back when, you know, rather than the way it is now. But I, you know, I 
thought you'd but find there, that interesting. There's principles. No, I mean, that's, that's still, those principles are still in mastering today because you do a lot of broad, simple, broad, like, broad, you know, EQ, for example, it's, it's not these, you know, these, if you're going to do cuts, it's very, it's a frequency and it is, it's super, super narrow. But if you're boosting everything, it's very broad. It's only, it's a couple of dBs. It's really like to enhance it. And that's what it is, just like a little bit. And yeah. I feel like there's, yeah, that's very cool. That's very, very cool. I know a lot of mastering engineers. I, well, I wrote a book on it and, and I can walk to two major mastering houses where I'm at. They're my buddies. I go and hang out a lot. So I've watched them a lot over the years. I've watched some of the greats in the business. I'm always amazed what happens with them doing so little. And you look and you go, you're only putting half a DP on. Why does this sound so much better? You know, and, and just little here, little there. And you go, it sounds so much better, but yeah, it doesn't look like you did much. Knowing where to <laughs> do it at, that's the real secret. So it's always a lot of fun for me to go and, you know, watch these guys. Yeah. Especially when you just, I think when you've listened to what's great, you almost start going autopilot where your brain's like, oh, you know what's missing because you've, you've done the before after so many times and also before and after where it's really bad and maybe not enough. And so, yeah, yeah, that's where the muscle, I think the putting the time and the, almost like the muscle memory comes in being like, we need, we need more warmth. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Very cool. All right, last question. Okay. So what is the best piece of advice that maybe somebody gave you or you learned along the way? I think that this piece of advice, and this is one that I recently shared with my little sister who's a musician and is trying to do music and is also working a full-time job that is totally not in the industry that is her forte. But it's... Basically, if you stick to something and you just never give up, regardless of how bad you are at it, like, and you just persevere and you keep going forward, you will succeed at whatever you do. You will, because the only way you don't succeed in it is if you stop. And I've just, I've just seen that, that the days that you just feel like I'm not good at this. Maybe I'm not cut out to, to do this is if you stay in it, you will succeed if you just keep going. You can find out more about Mitch at ondemandsongwriter.com. That's ondemandsongwriter.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>